And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. one of the Keith Law Show. My guest today is going to be Professor Max Bazerman, who teaches at Harvard Business School. He has a fantastic, uh, really brand new book called Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop, which seems extremely timely. And he runs through a lot of the major scandals that, that folks know about. Theranos, uh, WeWork, the Sackler family, Penn State, Michigan State, the Catholic Church, etc., and focuses, rather than uh, focusing on the 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 people who actually perpetrated these crimes uh, on the people around them or you, inner circle or even beyond who made it easier for those folks to do these things or to get away with them for so long. For those of you who subscribe to The Athletic, I've had two new posts since the last podcast. One was last week. I posted an updated ranking of the top 50 players for this year's MLB draft. And then just on Wednesday morning, posted a new draft scouting blog. I went last week to see Wyatt Langford of Florida, who was injured when I saw the Gators back in March. But he is a top three pick in this year's draft, number two on my most recent ranking. Also saw a couple of high school hitters, Kevin McGonigal outside Philly, Sam Stafora just north of New York City, who could go in the first round and added some general draft notes to the end of that Wednesday blog post. For those of you who follow me for board game content, I did have a new review over up on Paste last week of the game Earth, which I have described as Wingspan, but more. A lot of the things people like about Wingspan, the engine building aspect of it, uh, Earth has a very similar feel, but is a little more complex, a little bit more involved, just a little bit more of everything. If you want a slightly longer and more challenging game experience, but you like Wingspan, Earth might be a good title for you. My guest today is Professor Max Bazerman of Harvard Business School, whose new book, Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop, is out now from Princeton University Press. He's also the author of Better Not Perfect and co-author of Blind Spots, Why We Fail to Do What's Right and What to Do About It. Professor Bazerman, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me to your show. So just the other day, the New York Times ran yet another profile of Elizabeth Holmes, uh, former head of founder and former head of Theranos. Uh, many people thought that the profile gave her an opportunity at least to minimize her crimes and try to rehabilitate her image. At the very least, it was giving her more airtime. Granted, she's already been convicted of a few counts of fraud, but this seemed to me at least a potential example of the very sort of complicity that your book aims to expose and combat where folks in the media in court in your telling were really uh key to allowing her to perpetuate this fraud for a long period of time so can you talk a little bit about 
how the media in general have enabled, whether it's the Theranos example or others, what do we do on the media side to wittingly or unwittingly help people like Elizabeth Holmes get away with these things for so long? Sure. I'm happy to address that, that issue. But I do want to note that sometimes the media is key to bringing um, that, uh, sort of bad behavior to light. And John Terrio was critical mm-hmm. to bringing the Elizabeth Holmes story um, to the public in an accurate way and, and to expose that scandal. But, you know, I, I do think that uh, the media often likes kind of a hero story. We like um, we like it when records are broken. Um, we, we like reporting amazing new technology. Um, and I think that when journalists don't probe hard enough, when they don't ask enough questions, they become part of the problem and they become complicit in allowing bad behavior to occur, whether it's Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos or whether it's some of the major sports scandals that we've seen um, in recent decades. So I do think journalists play a role. I, I think that um, a good journalist asks tough questions and that they don't stop with simple answers. They don't stop with what makes a good headline, but rather um, they try to make sure that they're telling you the total and complete story. I should mention John Carrier's book on Theranos, Bad Blood, is one of the best nonfiction books I've read in the last probably five to ten years. Um, I agree. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, so getting now to the sort of more general themes that you get at in complicity, you distinguish what you call obvious complicity, which are, I think, to the you know, sort of in the common vernacular, we think of those people as accomplices or even co-conspirators from what you refer to as ordinary complicity, which I, I think is the most interesting part of the book, because that can be any of us. That can include any of us, even if we don't realize what we're doing. And you even talk about examples, uh, one in particular, where you yourself were complicit in uh, something you didn't do necessarily, but you go back through your own history and say, what could I have done differently to maybe avoid this particular controversy? Can you walk through the story a little bit of the paper you co-authored with several people, including Dan Ariely, and how you overlooked some of the questions you had about the underlying data, what you do differently if you could hop in a time machine? Absolutely. So, so first of all, thanks for highlighting that sort of a key distinction in the book between sort of intentional versus unintentional complicity or explicit versus implicit complicity. And as you note, um, the book highlights the fact that when we think about the complicit, we th- typically think about intentional bad guys. Okay? And the book focuses more on all of the rest of us who um, who don't define ourselves as, uh, the, the book focuses on most of the rest of us who don't define ourselves as bad guys, but in fact, we do too little to stop bad behavior from occurring. And um, in the in the book, I talk about a story where it turns out I'm the co-author of a paper with fraudulent data. And I certainly didn't know it at the time. I didn't commit fraud. Um, but um, the paper, which claimed to show that if you sign a document before you fill it out, promising to tell the truth, you'll get more honesty than if you sign after, like we typically do, um, was a seemingly lovely result of providing sort of a great hint on how do you improve honesty um, on lots of different forms that we fill out in life. And um, and the, it's, it's clear in retrospect that somebody had 
made up some of the data. Um, and um, I, you know, in the process had asked a number of critical questions when things didn't look quite right to me. Um, but I was rooting for the paper. And I think when I got answers that seemed to make sense, I too quickly took my foot off the brake and didn't that didn't probe hard enough. And um, to be sort of harder on myself, um, a lot of scientists, as we um, be, become more experienced, as we have more brilliant young people around us, I became farther and farther distant from the data. And I basically trusted others to do parts of the project. And in retrospect, um, I think I trusted too much. And I could have done a variety of things to probe the data more thoroughly um, to better understand what was going on. And I think had I spent an hour early on in the project, I could have avoided one of the worst episodes of my life. Another example that you go into a, a few different points in the book that I think most listeners have encountered at some point or would at least understand is the too cozy relationship between pharmaceutical sales reps and doctors. And I, I feel like that probably could have bl been blown out into its own book because of all of the uh, ramifications potentially. But can you go into a little bit of, of again, where sort of where this went wrong as a system? Because I feel like this is just what we have at this point. Pharmaceutical sales reps go to doctor's offices, uh, give you know, not just encouragement, but there can be essentially gift giving that we strongly believe, shall we say, influences doctors' uh, cho choices on what medications to prescribe to people. Is there, how do we get to this point? And is there a, a any solution short of you know, essentially an act of Congress or multiple acts of Congress to just come from the top down and try to change this entire culture? Sure. So I, I don't think that physicians who are making decisions on what is the best drug that you should get for the particular ailment that you're confronted with should be affected by monetary incentives to get you to move toward one drug over another. But yet, We've allowed that to occur in a variety of ways. Not only do pharmaceutical reps show up with um, with meals, um, with pizza, um, with um, a variety of gifts, um, but we also um, allow pharmaceutical firms to hire physicians as consultants to give speeches at um, at particularly high fees, at expense paid trips to fancy resorts, and. Imagine that you have doc who consults with firm A, and then they have a patient who could be treated by the drug from firm A or from firm B, um, and they recommend firm A. Well, um, sort of, are they a bad person? I wouldn't say they're a bad person because they probably believe that firm A has a better drug. But the fact is that most of us tend to think that the company we're connected to makes a better product. So we think that our university is better. You think that your podcast is the best kind of podcast in the category. So we're all biased toward thinking that what we're connected to is better. And when we allow doctors to be associated with one particular product, whether it's because of gifts, consulting contracts, free trips, et cetera, we're taking, a, we're taking them away from identifying what is the best product. 
and they're thinking in terms of what's the product that comes to my mind as a good solution to this particular patient's problems. So if you asked a, a doctor, are conflicts of interest a problem in your business? They would say, sure. If you ask them, are they affected? They would say, no, I'm too ethical for that. And that's because we tend to think of sort of um, conflict of interest in an, in, in an intentional way, sort of the intentional changing of my opinion because of some financial incentive that I have. But what I'm arguing is that the effect on most nice doctors, the kind of doctors that your listeners go see when something bothers them, are basically nice people who are biased without realizing that they're biased. If I asked you how smart your child was, I wouldn't expect an objective answer from you. And similarly, when a doctor is paid um, uh, by a particular pharmaceutical firm, it's no longer cognitively reasonable to expect that they will be unbiased in what drug they recommend to you. And tying together those sort of last two topics, too, you spent quite a bit of time talking about the Sackler family and the oxycodone. Uh, it's more than a scandal. I feel like that, that word is insufficient. But it makes me think of in these cases, and this seems like one of the core sorts of complicity that you get at multiple times in the book, too, is doctors not asking questions or simply taking on faith when someone from the pharmaceutical company says, no, 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 this drug has fewer side effects. This drug is safer. When in fact, now we know the opposite was true. And the company, at least, the, the Purdue Pharmaceuticals, they knew this wasn't true. But multiple people down the line, particularly the doctors, it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong here, just didn't ask the questions. They had that sort of loyalty you're discussing and said, oh, this drug is safer. It's certainly effective. I can prescribe this without any further research or further concern. So I, so I don't want to put all docs in the same bucket. So first of all, I assume that some docs did their homework and realized the problem and didn't over-prescribe opioids. Um, and then you have at the other extreme uh, pill mills where doctors were making large sums by seeing patients very quickly um, to collect their fees uh, to, to basically write scripts as fast as they can. Um, in the middle, I, I cer can certainly imagine that you have overworked docs. So the, the number of patients that a lot of doctors have on their list has grown dramatically in the last um, decade or so. And with pain, um, may well think about how do I reduce this pain? And the question of, and what secondary causes might I create like addiction um, can easily drift from their attention. So you can have a well-intentioned doctor um, who has received limited information, hasn't spent the extra time to do extensive homework on pain management and has been informed by a rep from Sackler about sort of the effectiveness of their drug and the lack of addictiveness of the drug information that was clearly false. And the doctor basically uses what they have available in a limited amount of time to solve the patient's immediate problem of reducing pain. And they do that without realizing how they're contributing to this enormous social problem that we've seen unfold in recent decades. 
another uh, another example from the book is the uh, the so-called blue wall of silence, where we have a culture of police office among some police officers again, where they uh, refuse to report on or testify about abuses they may have witnessed from their colleagues. How can an organization like a police department change that culture from the top down? Because it seems to me like these in, in, in cultural issues like that feel like they are very much bottom up. Is is there a way to reform? It doesn't have to be police specifically, but to reform any organization like that when your ability to make widespread changes is often limited to what you can do from the top of the hierarchy. Sure. So I think that um, all organizations are affected by the tone set from the top. And leaders have an obligation to create a clear understanding of what behavior is expected within that organization. And when um, when um, organizations create a norm of protect the image of our organization at all costs, um, that's going to lead to cover-up. In the case of, of police organizations, we've long had a norm that police officers don't turn in their fellow officer. And that's a highly dysfunctional, inappropriate norm that we've allowed to exist within police forces for decades. Um, if we ask the question, what do we want as a society, police officer A to do when police officer B is involved in truly egregious behavior, the answer is pretty obvious, yet we haven't we, we haven't encouraged our society to create police uh, police forces that have the integrity um, for the for a police officer to turn in um, his or her colleague um, when the uh, when when the colleague is doing something particularly egregious. So I think that setting the tone from the top, creating norms of what's expected, working with police. Um, unions on changing the behavior of their members from the union side as well seems critically important. But there's also th changes that we see going on in society. So in recent years, we've we've seen the legal system hold officers um, accountable for the com their complicity when they sort of stood by as their fellow officer engaged in egregious behavior. Um, we also see the increased use of cameras um, where police officers are forced to have cameras either on their body or on their police car so that um, information is recorded in ways that are useful. And we also have more, more citizens who are taking to using their cell phone in order to capture the behavior of inappropriate police behavior. So I think that we can, we can identify a variety of ways that we could intervene to break this blue wall of silence. Um, but I would focus on the best way to start is by starting at the top and changing the tone that the leader sets. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Uh, the longtime basketball coach for West Virginia University, Bob Huggins, uh, repeatedly used a homophobic slur on a radio program last week. And as the audio clip spread, many people were calling for his termination. But there was a small portion of the Mountaineers fan base that went on social media and tried to either dismiss or diminish the seriousness of what he said. You talk about this sort of loyalty in the book. You talk about a little bit specifically for sports teams and how it increases the potential for complicity. So can you talk a little bit about kind of the psychology of that, how we, you know, to borrow the line from Seinfeld, we're, we're just rooting for laundry, yet it creates this mentality among some people that no 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 the, the people who are wearing my laundry they actually can't do any wrong and they should their sins should be forgiven absolutely so um i grew up as a pittsburgh pirate and pittsburgh Steeler um fan and ballpark vendor um and i can easily identify with the loyalty that i had to my favorite teams and um, and we all know that, you know, if, if we see a ref make a call, um, the fans on the two sides just see it kind of differently. So um, so loyalty clouds our judgment, um, but loyalty can also lead us to not act um, when, in fact, we know we have a moral obligation to act. Um, we basically stop thinking about that issue. So when um, our team is cheating by um, by viewing um, signals uh, from the other team in an illegal basis, we basically often have refrains like, but everybody's doing that rather than my team was wrong. And, um, and unfortunately, that's what people said during the Nazi era as well. Everybody's doing it or has only fallen orders. And those excuses aren't good enough. Um, so I think that we um, we should be engaged in changing what what does it mean to be a good fan? Um, so when teams endorse cheating, when they don't punish the cheaters, okay, I think that they own it. And I see teams sort of significantly responsible for a lot of the bad behavior that I see in, see in sports. Even if we go back to the height um, of the steroid scandal in baseball, no, basically the owners were um, sitting there making money as home runs were going over the fence. And, you know, the naked eye could look at a chart of home run production and see that there had been a major shift in a very short period of time. Um, and they chose to do nothing about it. And then finally, when the journalists caught up with some of the leading steroid users or alleged steroid users, um, the team said bad, bad player. Well, I'd say bad, bad owner when, in fact, it's pretty clear that your industry has been corrupted by steroid, by steroid abuse and you do nothing about it. We had another scandal even uh, a little bit more recently where a couple of teams, notably the Houston Astros, they weren't the only ones, um, were found to have stolen signs using um, the, often using cameras and, and uh, the very high tech solution of banging on trash cans. Um, to particularly during uh, years where they won the World Series or were very successful in the playoffs. And the what I found interesting was here, so under the steroid era, 
Major League Baseball punished the players. And that was largely an individual transgression. But in the case of the sign-stealing scandal, they went after the coaches who were either involved or simply did nothing to stop it. But I don't believe any of the players who were involved in the sign-stealing were ultimately punished. And I don't know if you looked specifically into the case, but in general, what is your feeling on a solution that essentially goes after the goes after the officers rather than the rank and file when you have one of again one of these more widespread organizational transgressions rather than the more individual one like we had with with the steroid abuse? Really. So let's go back to steroid abuse. You 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 referred to that as individual action. I don't. I honestly don't see it that way. I think that when you create a system where you can't as a 25-year-old athlete without a college education, that you can't effectively compete against people who are taking steroids without taking steroids yourself, and the owners do little about it. Um, I don't think that that should be viewed just as individual action. I think that the, the leaders, in fact, created the steroid abuse by their propensity to look the other way. It is interesting in the sign stealing story of, uh, of the Houston Astros, um, the punishment went the other way. The, the focus was on the coaches. Um, and, you know, I think that baseball had a problem, sort of how many people do you want to accuse and how severe the punishment should be. And, you know, I, I think that fans let these teams off too easy and let the system off too easy. And, and I don't think we should see the commissioner as sort of this independent, honest judge appointed um, um, for, for their ethicality. They're, they're, they're helping to run an institution, a collaborative set of organizations um, focused on making money in baseball. And I, I think that we did do too little um, on the, on the sign stealing issue Um but um, but if I had to be if I had to make the mistake of punishing the top or the bottom, I'd rather see us punish the top, where people have more leverage to change the institutions that surround us. The last thing I wanted to ask about uh, is a particular phrase that you just that you define in the book, parasitic integration, which I think often applies in the sports world too. And it came to mind just over the last week. The Oakland A's are potentially relocating to Las Vegas and trying to negotiate a deal with government authorities there, where the government is essentially giving away a bunch of taxpayer money to the team, and the taxpayers have little to no say in this. And it seems like that happens essentially every time we have a new stadium, you know, new stadium is funded or built or renovated, where it's just essentially a giveaway from taxpayers to the team's owners. It also came up the last time we had collective bargaining, where you have the players on one side, the owners on the other side, and the fans are stakeholders, at least, but there's really nobody at the negotiating table who is essentially being any voice of the fan, right or wrong. Um, can you talk a little bit about parasitic integration and what uh, constraints or rules might be put in place to try to reduce the effect of this of this phenomenon? Sure. So imagine there's two companies in an industry and um, they get together and they decide to triple their price for both of them to triple their prices. Okay. And that decision will allow them to make more money. Um, and the party not at the table. So they're integrating their interests to create more value. 
but they're doing it by stealing it from people who aren't in the discussion. And that is the consumers who are going to end up paying dramatically higher prices. And we see exactly this kind of behavior um, in many industries. So we see it um, in pharmaceuticals, where you'll have a branded company who will indirectly pay a new entrant to stay out of the market so that they can maintain their monopoly and continue with high prices. So basically, big company pays small company to not enter market. They both end up better off at the expense of the customers again. So in the story you're telling, and it's not just sports arenas, but we can also think about bringing manufacturing plants to a town. Um, um, we, we have an enormous problem, which we've had for decades, that um, municipalities and states are paying enormous subsidies to very rich team owners in order to lure them to either keep their team um, in their current location or move to another location. And, and these tax subsidies are in the long term being paid by the taxpayers. Um, and um, I think it's profoundly inappropriate behavior. Um, there's a well-documented story of Kansas and Missouri continually paying companies to move across the river from one state to the other, um, from Kansas City, Missouri to Kansas City, Kansas, um, where they don't even have to change the homes of the employees because they're they're so close, um, um, and basically luring them into the other state um, with these enormous benefits, and then the other state lures them back three years later, paying them more enormous benefits. And and so what when we think about a sports arena, this is just a very visible example. And part of it, um, so you're treating the the citizens a little bit too innocently, because I think the citizens are, are typically in favor of paying the enormous subsidies because they don't want to lose their team. And they're simply ignoring the negative effect that that will have on their economy, on their school systems, on their health care in the long term. And, you know, th th this goes back to the founding of our country and discussions about states' rights versus federal rights. But um, this is certainly a case where I think the ethical solution requires congressional intervention to stop these kinds of subsidy, uh, subsidies from existing to lower companies, for example, sports teams from one location to another. It's enormously dysfunctional. The citizens are paying the tab and they certainly aren't aware of it at the time. And um, I think it's a highly unethical action um, that's perpetuated both by cities, states, and team owners on a regular basis. My guest today has been Professor Max Bazerman of Harvard Business School, whose new book, Complicit, How We Enable the Unethical and How to Stop, is out now from Princeton University Press. Professor Bazerman, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with me and your good questions. I appreciate uh, spending time talking to you. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner StubHub 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.